This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. Welcome to Safe Space Radio for Courageous Conversations. Today is the last in our series on child abuse, and it also happens to be the last show we are doing before Safe Space takes its annual summer sabbatical. We are going to be off the air until September, although all 174 interviews of Safe Space Radio will be available and can be downloaded from safespaceradio.com. So go back and look up some oldies if you're missing us. Today, I will be speaking with Julie Kolpitz about how recovery from child abuse looks over the lifespan. We're going to be focusing on how survivors of child abuse often work to give back so much to others as they grow up. And we'll be talking about the key turning points in moving from recovery to reclaiming and getting on with one's life. Julie Colpitz is a social worker and the executive director of the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, a statewide coalition of domestic violence resource centers. Prior to working with domestic violence, Julie has worked to strengthen nonprofits in a host of areas, including equine-assisted therapy, counseling centers, and fostering community among cancer survivors. Welcome back to Safe Space, Julie. Well, thank you, Anne. Um, I enjoyed our last conversation and looking forward to this one. I want to ask you, you have a wonderful perspective of having had a whole career working in social service jobs of some kind, working with child trauma, working with domestic violence. And I want to ask you about some of the myths. And I, and I know that you, too, are also a survivor of your own abuse as a child. Um, I want to talk about how that's informed your work. And, and let's begin by talking about what are the myths of the long-term impact it has on a person to be a survivor of abuse. Right. One of the wonderful things about being in my 60s is I do get a chance to look back and look at events over a whole lifespan and recognizing that there are really turning points that if we embrace them as part of the revisiting of childhood trauma, you get healthier and healthier and more and more in charge of your own life. One of the things that's concerned me a lot, I love the fact that there's research coming out about the impact of children observing either domestic violence or having their own abuse. But there are some myths that evolve. The worst one, I think, is the assumption that people are going to repeat abuse. Now, that doesn't mean that some people don't, because it can be a learned behavior, but the vast majority of people exposed to trauma do not repeat the abuse. And in fact, they end up being overrepresented in the careers like law enforcement and social work and nursing and all of the protecting and helping professions, really taking an active stance against what they experienced. And I think the second set of myths has to do with wellness. The Felitti research into adverse childhood experience lays out a really kind of almost terrifying schema in which point you're going to die earlier. And right. you're going to have be all sub- these illnesses. I know you're going to have all these illnesses, and not only did your childhood suck, but gee, now you're going to die young. Certainly, those risks are there. But again, there's another element of resiliency that isn't factored into that. In fact, one of the things that I do when I train on the ACEs or when I watch other people doing it is I'll watch advocates and law enforcement professionals in the room and their shoulders start to go down and their faces start to look worried. And so when it's my turn, I'll say, I'm so sorry. I know you've just heard sets of awful risks. And I have to tell you, there's a third set of really dangerous risks. 
and their eyes get big. And I follow and they're it. Like, oh no, I more. Know, I know. Right. And I follow it by saying, you run the real risk of having an early empathic connection and an affinity for justice, and you're going to go out in the world in a low-paying, high-stress advocacy job for the rest of your life. <laughs> they all laugh, but it allows us to move into this concept of both building resiliency and also the awareness that. For a lot of us, what we experienced drives in a real way choices through our life. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not so good. And one of the pieces as I look back is really wanting to share in some senses some of the places where I think those choices are made and how to make them choices that foster our resiliency as opposed to our burnout. I got some insight into that probably sometime in my mid-career because some new research came out on how people, children or adults, manage terrifying experiences. Um, We probably all know about the fight, flight, freeze options in terms of responding to an emergency. And even, you know, I actually wanted you to talk about freeze just for a minute Mm because I think a lot of people know about fight and flight. But freeze is a relatively recent addition. So why don't you say a little bit about freeze and then we'll move on. Freeze is sort of, the way I explain it, it's like the rabbit when there's movement of a hawk overhead, they just freeze absolutely still, don't move. The assumption that in that immobile, powerless position, danger will pass them by. They'll be invisible. They'll it's be like invisible. a deer in the headlights. It's like a deer in the headlights without the headlights because they're convinced <laughs> they're not seen. <laughs> right. And in the moment, it sometimes works. But long term, what it does is create this inner self that shuts down and doesn't embrace the world and doesn't reach out for either good experiences in the hope that they will therefore avoid bad ones. So it's fairly maladaptive long term. Right. But a group of women and men really notice that these three mechanisms don't address all of people's behavior. There's the the altruistic um, surrender, where someone leaps in front of a bus to save someone else or across a hand grenade so that their allies don't get harmed. Um, And there are the people that, the old cliche, that run into the burning building instead of running out of the burning building in order to rescue. And what they found was this tend and befriend response that they called. And found that for some people, stepping out of that freeze position into an action lowered their blood pressure, lowered their heart rate, reestablished a sense of mastery, and allowed them to feel better. And I mean, I think I I know so many people in, you know, firefighters, law enforcement, ER docs, ER nurses, for whom this is a a deep value and a deep instinct. And it is, and it is a wonderful one. And I do not mean to take anything away from that impulse because it certainly is a key organizing factor in my life. But if we recognize that sometimes it came as a coping strategy, that that's what you had to do to get yourself calmed down, that kids who made that empathic connection stepped in no matter how minor the gesture of consolation was to stroke mommy's arm when she got hurt or to take a more effective action as you grow older, one of its core meanings is to keep you together and to keep you reassured. So it has a driven quality as well as an altruistic, admirable quality. And I think it helps certainly me understand a lot of the overwork and the driven sense about 
people's choices. I'm going to work too many hours. I'm going to work for no wages. I'm going to, you know, all those books about people who can't say no. Well, I bet if you scratch the surface around a lot of those people who can't say no, what you're going to find is people who have an overdeveloped empathic connection to the needs of others and have reassured themselves by taking care of those needs. So what mm-hmm. I hear you saying is that while the outcome of these actions may be truly beneficial to the recipient, and therefore it, it may be a very lovely thing, mm-hmm. um, ultimately it's about helping themselves, and therefore if they feel in great need, it may have this kind of extra-driven quality, which which is not really that sustainable. Well, it's not sustainable, and, and I think there are, a, a, sort of the, if we're talking about phases, okay. there's an early-on piece where as an um, educator of young social workers, I, so many of the folks were really, as I would have been at that age, working out their own trauma. Now, they were doing it sometimes in healthy ways, and they were the ones that became local therapists. Others, we counseled out of the program and had them take some time off to come to terms with their own need. But for so many folks, and it's fine, it's not a shameful thing, it's nothing people should be concerned of. They're emulating perhaps a therapist that helped them. And they're also coming from that space of this is who I am and this is what I need to do. But at some point along there, there's a kind of mid-career moment, which I call sort of the therapeutic burnout. They're doing it too many hours. They're doing it at their own expense. Um, They're pressured by it. And every time they're encountering it with their client or in a law enforcement protective situation, they're also re-experiencing it and feeling it again inside themselves. So it's exhausting. Hmm. And yeah. there is a moment um, over I've seen over and over again where they come up against that, and then the question is, oh, I'm burning out. What do I do? And I remember that really, really well for me because it actually came at a time when I had youngsters. I was running a really under funded um, residential program. I was pulling night shifts and doing all of it. And in the middle of that, I was good at what I did. And one of my board members made me um, an offer in private industry that was about three times what I was making, much less stress. And I'd gotten these offers before and always blown them away. And for some reason, I just stopped and took this offer seriously. And I thought, well, what if I did? And you know, in those little epiphanies, I'd probably been working on this for years. But at that moment, I thought, wow, for the first time, I really could. You know, I've done my time um, in that sense. I've done yeah. my payback. Mm-hmm. This is a much easier life. And I was up late at night obsessing about this. And I had Leonard Cohen on, who I, I love <laughs> Leonard Cohen music. And in the way that you do in the late night hours, and you feel like the music is speaking to you, yep. he suddenly delivered the line, and many men are falling where you promised to stand guard. Oh, nice in the heart. Right to the heart. And I burst out laughing. Uh Uh-huh. And I thought, whoa, that has been me for so many years. Ah. And the protector, the, you know, the caretaker, all of that. And I sat there and I thought, well, you know what? I don't have to do this anymore, but you know what? Damn it all. This is who I am. And this is an adult choice. This is what I want to be doing. It's what I'm good at. It gives back to me. And I don't, I'm not even thinking about this other offer twice. I'm not driven anymore. I'm choosing. So, so in other words, you didn't take the offer, nope. but it gave you this turning point of, of moving from sort of having to do something, needing to do it for yourself, even if that's not conscious, mm-hmm. to really embracing it as what you most care about and believe in. Absolutely. 
And what also changed at that point, even though my staff will laugh when they hear this because I think I'm an inveterate workaholic, but um, (laughs) there was a pullback and an absolute permission to go to Paris on vacation that year, Mm. to play music again. There was really a different engagement in the ability to reach out for things that gave me just pleasure without negating them to do what I was supposed to do around this caretaking piece. Now, if that were just me, I would think it was my own you know, little working through. But time and time again, as I've worked with um, mature, that sort of 30 to 40 age professional, I come up against it over and over and really want them to have permission to not see that as burnout, but to see that as the opening to have this internal conversation with themselves. I did this because I needed to do this, and I felt I owed it, and I wanted to. It was a gift. So I want to ask you two pieces about this. The first is I recognize the the phase you're talking about, since we're talking about this in terms of phases, mm-hmm. as a kind of brittle, self-righteous phase. The mm-hmm. driven phase, I can tell it. I can tell it in myself when I start getting really self-righteous about my ideological position. Mm-hmm. And that's what I know this is really about. I, I think it's about trying to make sure that we feel we are good. Well, you know, we're on the right side of something. There certainly is a recovery, Anne, I think, that does go on about reclaiming one's childhood self in a holistic way. And, and I think that happens. I think life is wonderful in that way because it gives you these opportunities all the way along that therapy can't provide. Oh. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about another circumstance in which um, having children allows you to replay what you thought you were going through when you were f- a child and see it through different eyes. Yeah, so let's talk about parenting because that, that yeah. figures in here in a big way. Tell me more about well, seeing it through a different eyes as a parent. I think anybody can tell you their stories about that, about reliving their own life and what worked well with their parents and how they made their choices. The one that stands out in my mind in terms of the abuse sequelae is I remember looking at my daughter at four years old, just playing on an ordinary afternoon and having one of those almost dizzying epiphanies where I suddenly looked at her in four and thought, oh, my God. She's a baby. She's vulnerable. She has no way of protecting herself. She relies on me to do that for her. And counteracting that at just the same time with my perception of myself at four being all-powerful, should have been able to protect this other sibling situation, should have been able to save people, and never having, through all of the therapeutic conversations, ever really connected that I was a baby. And that just the sudden sense of, whoa, and the self-forgiveness that goes on and the letting go of the survivor guilt. And that repositioning of oneself in terms of reality versus the child's internal story where it's all your fault, all your responsibility, and you really are terribly powerful when you're not. I love that story. And I I feel like it's similar with the sense of failure. So many people, Mm -hmm. I think, with a history of abuse or trauma, feel somehow that they fail to stop it. Mm-hmm. I think that they should true. have been able to stop it and, and somehow that they're complicit because they were unable to stop it. Right. And when you see a four-year-old, you realize, oh, my oh, gosh. That's so silly. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible. And I think for me, I was extremely lucky because the abuse that I experienced did not come at the hands of my parents. This was a daycare situation, caretaker um through my early childhood. So I also got to go home to a sane family 
who um, dad was sailing and in Korea in war during part of this, and they had no idea what was going on because the consequences of telling had been made very clear to me. You've been um, threatened. Oh, absolutely. And and a child believes threat, so I was sure my mom would die and my the little girl in the, in the daycare with me would die and all of these horrible things would happen. But I got a counterpart, and I got love and reassurance and support. So some part of my childhood development knew clearly that there was another way to live. And I think that lots of youngsters reach out for those other mentors. Um, they find people in the community whose houses they visit who don't have it at home, for example. Um, and they find ways of establishing a, a growing sense that what happened to them was neither right nor fair nor their fault. But it takes a long time to believe that. And you whip those off so quickly, they, they sound important. Neither right nor fair nor their fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so th- it's, do you think of those as like the three things a child needs to get at some point? I do. Um, yeah. I think that reestablishing justice, and I think a lot of the times return to protection and to caretaking to reestablish fairness and justice. There's a real need to be able to say the world has to have some justice in it and I'm going to make it happen. Right. So I think that speaks back to your sense of self-righteousness because it can certainly come across that way and it can be unforgiving sometimes. Yeah. And yet it comes from that core need to make it different. Um, yes, or from the core need of feeling like I'm bad because I was part of it. I mean, that, that, because mm-hmm. that forgiveness hasn't applied yet to self. Right. And I, I, you know, these these ideas about things happening quickly obviously work over these over time. But I'll bet most people listening, if they are involved in this, can remember those blinding moments when something became true. And you go from thinking that four-year-olds should have been able to take care of themselves to going, oh, my God, maybe it's time to forgive myself. And by the time the words are out, you've already done it internally. It's already happened. Right. Realizing that belief that it was my fault is really a bald-faced lie. Absolutely. And I can just let it go. Yeah. You're listening to Safe Space Radio. This is Dr. Ann, and I'm speaking with Julie Kolpitz about how so many people who have survived early childhood abuse go on to work in the social service professions and what the impact of that abuse is over the lifespan of professionals working in these areas. So I want want to ask you about more of those blinding points, and I want to name one, too. The one that I see so often in my work is what I call the shift from feeling damaged to feeling wounded. Because so many people that I've worked with who have survived abuse Mm -hmm carry a deep feeling of damage, that somehow there's a permanent sense of damage that, that they'll always carry, that they feel sort of almost contaminated. Um, and we work hard to really see that there is wound, but there isn't damage. Mm-hmm. The person is not sort of permanent. And that, that feels like one of these, another one of these developmental turning points in the lifespan. I think it does... And the language that we often use is it's what happened to you, not who you are. Right, exactly. And the externalization of it. Well, we usually ask people to internalize things. This is sometimes we ask them to externalize it, that these things happened to you and they had an impact. And sometimes that impact, frankly, feels like damage. Yeah. But it's very different than being who you are, and it's very, very different than some moral taint that you carry that can't be undone. Um, or can't be retrieved. I think the other piece is that society encourages us to think we're damaged. 
Tell me about that. Well, I remember earlier in my training, nobody spoke up about having anything bad ever happen to them because in the training there was somehow this sense of us and them, us being the ones in the white coats and them being the ones that were all screwed up, where we all know that life is on a continuum. Nobody gets through life without moments of damage, and nobody gets through life completely whole. Um, so when you get rid of those arbitrary us-thems, you have a very different authentic human encounter that asks more of us. So I want to ask you about that in terms of even this very conversation. Mm-hmm. So you are courageously including yourself. You're saying, you're acknowledging, you know, that you're also a survivor. And, and when did you first start doing that, and were you scared to? Well, the first... I find I, I find my parents' voices in my head at this point because I find that because of that experience with them, where I wasn't a survivor, I thrived. That on p- some part of myself, I always felt like the feisty little brat. <laughs> and that was very helpful in that piece of it. It took a lot to be able to look then at the fact that some of that feistiness and bravado was a cover-up. And I think that's the moment when I began saying, all right, you know, yeah, you can fly airplanes, you can jump horses, you can be the... You fly airplanes, Julie? I I was the first girl at 16 in Maine to solo. Wow, Um, that is impressive. I took the world on with a chip on my shoulder. Mm. You know, I hiked the biggest peaks, I did everything. And at some point I realized that that was fun and I loved it, but it was an alternative response to the Mm -hmm. parts of me that didn't feel so competent. Yeah. And those years stunk, frankly. It's no fun to go back and revisit that and to have to be able to say, wow, there's a piece of me at that point that felt like this panicked, terrified person who could not protect myself. Yeah. So during that period of time, I didn't talk about that with anybody other than, um, actually other than my husband um, of long term and a few trusted colleagues that I knew had the same experience. You just didn't go outward with that. Yeah. The shame about it. Well, the shame in part and the sense that um, it would open you up to really being more of that person. You keep control by yeah. keeping privacy. And you keep a lid on it in that sense that you were all trained to do. Keep it wrapped up in some way. And it's protecting yourself from the assumptions and stigma that Absolutely. other people do have. So I want to I want to sort of name the phases as I've heard you say them. I mean, so what I hear you say is that the first way that you coped was by becoming incredibly fierce and competent. So first woman solo, you really were a girl, first girl solo flyer, in and Maine. then in Maine, <laughs> excuse me, in Maine, at sixteen, and then it sort of ultimately moved into a place of reclaiming the very vulnerable parts of you that had mm-hmm. felt helpless and, and unable. And that was really a hard phase, which makes sense. And then I heard you moving into these, these sort of social service and with a kind of driven edge because it was what you did to calm yourself down. And to live, it was the introduction at that point of the sense of restorative justice. That those two married each other about then. So part of it was about me, but a huge part of it was really about restorative justice for the world. In yes. some senses, it was making that it was starting that alchemy to move from my need to a larger world need. Yes. Yeah. And then at some point, 
catalyzed by this job offer that you didn't ultimately take, you really made this very affirming choice mm-hmm. where you were allowed to take care of yourself more. Absolutely. And you were allowed to do things that gave you pleasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't quite so driven. And then ultimately you moved out of direct service and more into real advocacy, tr- changing laws, mm-hmm. speaking out, and kind of a place of empowerment. In a way, there's sort of a, instead of this being a linear phase, it's almost like a circle because I it hear is. that at 16, you were incredibly empowered in certain ways. Absolutely. But that were more brittle. And then now you've kind of come full circle and you're empowered, but with, in such a more grounded way. Uh-huh. The one thing I'm thinking about in terms of the phases that we talked about, mm. that I think the first phase is the initial survival. Right. Um, and to honor what it takes at that moment to shut down part of yourself and keep going. You want to so say a little bit more about that first phase of survival? Um, I think in that first phase of survival, when you really realize, as I did, that my life was on the line at several points, that you do shut down a piece of yourself in order to engage the rest of it in survival. And that piece sort of sits there off on a back burner until you can establish enough power of personhood, enough sense of self, which was, I think, all that was about in making sure I was the toughest, fastest, whatever. Um, And then you can go back and reopen that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that process of bringing back to life the part that got really shut down is a a painful process and slow. It's painful. I think it comes in ebbs and flows. Um, I think it intrudes on your ordinary life in a replay sometimes, and you live in two worlds for a little while. Um, And then at some point, it just loses steam. It's like having a bad flu, and the fever breaks, and it's like, oh, yeah, I know that happened. I remember it. I don't do it anymore Mm. kind of feeling. One thing that struck me as you were talking was you were talking about revisiting. And I I kind of got Mm -hmm. this sense that you've revisited this history of trauma in different ways through different stages of your life. And I love that because we live in such a move-on culture. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Get over it. Pick yourself up by your boots. And there's such a devaluing of really learning from the past, really looking back and I'd love to hear about, did you struggle with that, feeling like you should be moving on and not revisiting? Well, I think, I agree with you. I think life moves in spirals. And each developmental phase, we make the next deeper spiral loop so that all of us do that throughout our lives and that we don't honor that very much. We are kind of a linear, how much money have you made, how much have you produced, keep moving kind of culture, which does us a lot of damage. In one way, I was lucky in that I could encapsulate this and still keep moving on. Um, in you kind of did both. I you kinda, moved on and you revisited. Right. And I suspect for most people, that's what they do. Yeah, they I, move on and they revisit. Yeah. The hard part is wishing that there was some magic um, ingredient that could make it not have happened in your life. Yes. And that's just not going to happen. So the good part is then embracing it happened. You know, what am I going to take from it? How is it going to impact me? What am I going to do with it? As opposed to trying to take a drug to make you forget it or a medication to get rid of the symptoms and make it go away because it ain't going. And I think the other piece that a lot of us who've experienced early difficulties do is we reserve some judgment about the world, whether we like it or not, whether we're going to finally say, okay, even though it was screwed up 
and I've lived a, a work life of seeing the innocent harmed and the guilty sometimes get off and all of the terrors and traumas that I still love the world. And it's that choice point at the end. You don't have to do that. You can still stay angry at it or you can do whatever you want to do. But I do think that's the last question that's delivered is, okay, at the end of this crazy, fantastic, horrible, wild ride, how do you feel about the world? How do you feel about the world, Julie? Well, I'm still working on that one. That's, that's where you are now. Yeah. That, I think that's that end discussion. Um, how do you f- make it make s- not make sense because you knew a long time ago none of it made sense. But how do you make your peace with it and better yet, which is most of where I spend my time, how do I embrace it enthusiastically? Julie Colfitz, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. You're very welcome, and thanks for the opportunity to have the conversation. If people want to know more about your work with the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, how can they find out about it? The website, www.mcedv.org. M-C-E-D-V.org. Correct. We'll give them some connects, um, and that's probably the best way to do that. Wonderful. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for being my consultant. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show and you really want to, you can go to our website at safespaceradio.com in about a week and get the show there. You can also email it to a friend. You can like us on Facebook. You can download it from iTunes. I want to remind you that we will be taking the summer off. Safe Space Radio will not be on the air again until September. You can go to the site and listen to any show you want between now and then. Coming up next today is Speak Freely.